Hello, and welcome to This Is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow, and I'm joined today by Jillian Lowry. She is a musician. She's currently in the band Deathbed Playlist. Yep. She also has a very interesting music-related job. I'm a music therapist. A music therapist. What is that all about? Well, I work in hospice, uh, specifically. So people end of life. Mm -hmm. A music therapist is trained in both music and psychology. And we learn how to use music to influence the rhythms of the body. Mm -hmm. So if you're having shortness of breath, we'll match the same pace of their breathing and then help them slow down. We also use it for pain management when meds aren't working well enough. Mm -hmm. And then all of the existential things that come up at end of life, helping with the emotional support of the whole family. Mm -hmm. When you do this, what kind of music are you working with? Yeah, so it's not, you know, some people will think like, oh, do you go and play like relaxing music or like spa music? Yeah, like when you get a massage. Yeah, it's so not that. Day one, I asked that person, what music's meaningful to you? What Mm -hmm. music do you really like? Because it's not just what you like to hear, but it's it it connects to who you are. It's your whole identity. And, you know, especially music from like your teen years, Mm -hmm. it'll bring you right back to that time. And next week, I got to learn a lot of a new Rod Stewart because... Because yeah. I've got a patient that loves Rod Stewart. And so I, what I'll do is learn it on guitar and voice and then recreate it for them. And then that opens up a whole discussion and mm-hmm. connecting them to their identity and their emotions and life review. And Yeah, wow. Sometimes we'll do songwriting. and. So assuming that you continue in this profession for you know, some number of years. I'm going to need to really brush up on my modern rock. Yeah. The, I'm the, becoming a you will. The, ty- the type of music that you're involved with primarily is going to start changing yeah right yeah it shifts yeah Yeah. it's like generational and so yeah it will be changing and you have to kind of remain fresh that way right makes the job always interesting right you can't get bored with this work for sure yeah have you been shocked or surprised by what is meaningful to people Sometimes with this work, what will happen is I'll get a preconceived notion because, mm-hmm. you know, everybody that's like 88 and up, super into big band, you right, know. Right. And so you get this preconceived notion of like, oh, if I get this referral and it's anyone of this age range, mm-hmm. um, they're probably going to be into this. And yeah. then, of course, it's music and it's human. So it will always keep you guessing. And sure. so it'll be somebody that's like, oh, I really like... Adele or you know (laughs) or who doesn't (laughs) (laughs) I sang to her in the bathroom this morning actually yeah Yeah. she was on the radio (laughs) so we're looking at August 1989 okay do you know what you were up to in In August 89 oh I bet I was wearing a lot of hot pink Uh uh-huh I think I really liked hair scrunchies I liked to do hair wraps nice do you know what you were listening to in 1989? <laughs> <laughs> I do. Good. Well, I think. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure if this is the exact year okay. time, but. Ballpark. But my first CD ever yeah. was CNC Music Factory. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> yeah. dance now. Yeah. Yeah. Anything that got me moving, that mm-hmm. that is my jam. Yeah. Yeah. So probably that and then, you know, a lot of classical and a lot of Broadway musicals. Oh, a nice. Lot. I think it's actually where I learned how to sing because I would just try to belt sure. those out like I was a grown woman. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at the modern rock charts for August 1989. Uh, when we start the month, there's a brand new song at number one. And this song is by a band called the B 52s. Yep. B 52s formed in 1976. Okay. The legend is that the band members 
prior to forming a band, they had gotten together at a Chinese restaurant and they shared some sort of magnificent giant alcoholic beverage called the Flaming Volcano. (laughs) (laughs) Following that, they retired to uh, one of their houses and did an impromptu jam session. Bonded for life. Apparently went so well, yeah, that they just decided to make it official. Let that be a lesson to all you bands feeling like on the fritz at all. Just go get yourself a giant volcano. Drink it up. The flaming, go to practice. I want a flaming volcano the right flaming. now. Is it too early? Is it too early in the day <laughs> no. for a flaming volcano? No, and you're a parent, so it certainly is not. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So the B-52s put out a few albums. They had some minor hits, but it seems like each album did a little less well than the previous. And then Shortly before their their fourth album was released, one of the founding members of the band, Ricky Wilson, he died, uh, and it was kind of unexpected. His death was due to AIDS-related complications, but he had kept it a secret for most of the band, including his sister, Cindy Wilson, who's, of course, in the B-52s. And so it wasn't until she got a call from the hospital and they told her that her brother was very, very ill and was not going to live much longer that she found out he was sick. Whoa. And this hit the band very hard. You know, they released this album because it was essentially already done, but their hearts weren't really in it after that. And they weren't really sure that they were going to keep going on as a band. But eventually, after I, I believe three long years, they started putting things back together and, and decided to give it another go. And uh, this was B-52's fifth album called Cosmic Thing. It ended up being very successful. This was their biggest hit by far. (laughs) The album went all the way to number four on the um, U.S. album charts. So one thing that was really interesting to me is that the label was not sure what to release as a single. And to my ear, it's super obvious. And the answer is Love Shack. Like to me, that sounds like a hit. And I'm... But really do you surprised think that because it is well you know i feel like the very first time i heard it i was like it's yes so freaking this catchy. i want to dance to this yeah and i hate dancing yeah they opted for a different single as, as the lead single off the album and they went with a song called channel z and that's what we're going to hear today how cool yeah channel z uh hit number one on the modern rock charts and it remained there for the first three weeks of august 1989 And this song is about a fictional radio station whose motto is Channel Z, all static, all day, forever. Brilliant. (laughs) I like it. Yeah. I don't... It's kind of like an art piece, isn't it? I think so. Yoko Ono would do that. I think she's covered Channel Z. (laughs) (laughs) Should we listen to it? Yeah. Okay, here we go. B-52's Channel Z. I'm so excited. That's a political song. Tell me about it. Well, because how I heard that was him listing all the crap that's going on in the world, mm-hmm. 1989. Yeah. Ozone. Yeah. Bombs. And then talking about uh, need to get away from all the static. Am I analyzing this at all like they intended? No, I, I think so. I think so. Um, space junk. Yeah. Laser bombs. Ozone holes. Better put up my umbrella. Yeah. I think this was commentary. Yeah. Uh, about the times for but, sure. But like wrapped up in... A dance song? A dance 80s, mm-hmm. like, space jam. Yeah. 
And that part where he's talking about the umbrella and singing, mm -hmm. it sounded super like Broadway. Yeah. -y. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I and think then the harmonies. The harmonies are great. Yeah. And complicated too in that little breakdown mm -hmm. bit. I think it's also just about being inundated with, with so much garbage from <laughs> every direction, you know, advertisements and meaningless television and, and things Facebook. like that. Just, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and um you know in that sense i think it certainly still applies to modern times yeah right even um, more so I'd even say. more so yeah whatever static they were getting in 1989 uh it's we're so facing louder yeah it's it's more it's worse it's, yeah. can we tie this into your work somehow <laughs> oddly yes we can oh, we great. can but in a really really left field kind of that's, way that's great there's a line in there mm -hmm. where she sings something about um something good is gonna happen yeah and <laughs> um my work a lot of it because of where i live and the population i serve i would say a huge portion is christian mm -hmm. and so there's a band called the gaither band okay uh, and they wrote a bunch of hymns i, I don't even know when but a lot of people love these hymns. And wow. one of them is, I just feel like something good is about to happen. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so I had just learned that one for a specific patient because that was her favorite song. Wow. Um, so that popped out. It's like, oh, look at that. Yeah. And you know what? That accent sounded suspiciously like an Athens, Georgia accent. Oh, I'm, wo it? I'm wondering if I there's... I just feel like <laughs> something good is about to happen. I wonder if the B-52s are fans of the... What, the what, Gaither Band? The Gaither I Band. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. They're more on the conservative side okay. of things. <laughs> the Gaither <laughs> Band, yeah. Like There's so not a connection except for this one line. A yeah, little optimism. Okay. Yeah. I just feel like something good's about to happen. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm just excited for the B-52s. I'm glad they were able to, to do this and have this big mainstream success and kind of come back from a sad point in their lives. And Yeah. You know. That's pretty amazing that they got back together. You know, at this point, they're kind of considered uh, minor legends, you know. They show up all over the place. Uh, they play at the Oregon Zoo they now do? and again. Yeah. Okay, next time let me know. Um, I, they seem to pop up in TV shows all over the place. You know, it's still alive and well. It's the kind of thing where I think they've really absorbed themselves into our consciousness yeah. and yeah. good for I them. I really want to hear that breakdown of that middle section again. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I like about this band is that they are so distinct. Like there's no band that sounds like mm -mm. them with that male kind of talk sing voice. And then like the two females doing harmony and they're yeah. very much singing and they're doing this back and forth thing. They're so much their own band. And the fact that they could be so different from everything else and still have mainstream success and, you know, modern rock success, I think that's amazing. Yeah. I wish, and I wish they were, together that long? Yeah. I mean, I wish there were more bands that were like that. They were, like they were so, so unique. unique. Yeah. You actually kind of can't compare them to anything else because they just are right. the B 52. That's right. Maybe Deathbed Playlist will take a, you know, <laughs> you, a little turn. That would be great. Down you know the what? B 52's um, path. Yeah. Pick up a male vocalist. <laughs> So no, when, we're a duo. Okay, we're a duo. Okay. Yeah. So after after three <laughs> weeks on top, the number one spot on the modern rock charts was replaced by a band called the Hoodoo Gurus. Mm. And this is a, an Australian band from Perth. Okay. And they were formed in 1981. This band is a band I was not familiar with, but if I was Australian, you would. I would be familiar yeah. with. Yeah. This, this is a very big band in Australia. Okay. They, this is their twelfth straight single to chart on the Australian charts. 
And this album is unfortunately titled... <laughs> oh, God. It's called Magnum Come Louder. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. What do you mean unfortunate? That's hilarious. That's an, yeah, it's a great pun, guys. Good job. <laughs> You know that, that that probably involved a flaming volcano as well. Like, it, oh, I got a really good idea. It, yeah. <laughs> so the song we're gonna the song we're gonna hear is number one on the modern rock charts, and it's called "Come Anytime." <laughs> These guys. These guys. This is definitely an all dude band, isn't it? Yeah. It, yeah. We'll, we'll say it is. We'll find I out. I don't know, but we'll. Yeah. We can assume. Yeah. Okay. Here it is. "Come Anytime" by the Hoodoo Gurus. All right. Should every sacred cow tell me all the things you might have done? Just tell me what are you doing now, right now? Come anytime, I won't give you pressure. Come anytime, I can't wait forever. And if you can't make up your mind, we could make it up together. I kept thinking. Okay, now we're going into the 90s. Like, mm-hmm. you can really hear that shift start to happen. Uh-huh. I had images of myself dancing, like, Molly Ringwald style. Oh. That beat just makes me want to dance that way. Yeah. You know, the leg kick out move. Yeah. Yeah. The take up a lot of space dance. I can't shake this feeling that when the Rembrandts wrote that song that became the theme song from the sitcom Friends. Friends. That's what I was going to say. I was like, oh, yeah, that was the other thing. It was right? Friends. It's Friends. It's Friends. It's totally Friends. It's totally Friends. That's there's, the first thing I thought. There's no way it's an accident, right? I don't this know. Is, it's so, I don't, so related. I don't, I don't know if the Rembrandts wrote that Friends theme for the show mm. or if it was. They found um, it. Or, yeah, right. If it already existed and, and the show creators grabbed it. But this to me, it feels like, do you remember when um, Ray Parker Jr. was commissioned to do the Ghostbusters theme song? Yes. Yeah. No, I don't remember when he yeah. was commissioned, but I remember <laughs> hearing the result. Yeah. And um, well, they had tried to get Huey Lewis in the news to do the theme and, mm. and they refused or weren't able to do it for whatever reason. And so they told Ray Parker Jr., write a Ghostbusters theme song that sounds like Huey Lewis in the news. I feel like the same thing's going on here. Like the people making friends. Here's what we want. We essentially want the Hoodoo Gurus come anytime, but it's a, the, the double entendres. It's a little risque. Now, I'm curious because it's Magnacum Louder, right? And it's C-U-M. But then the title of the song is Come C-O-M-E. Yeah. What? I, I know mean, it's it's weird, right? Is there like in the this actual song, are there sexual undertones in the lyrics? Because I... Yeah, it's, it's not like overtly no, sexual, it's but it's definitely... You know, it's there and it's it's obvious. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but but I am curious, like, why would it, they use the C-O-M-E this right. time around? It is, it is kind of weird, right? They weren't scared to do it on the Commit. title of the album. Right. But then on the song, you know, maybe maybe someone will know and uh, write in. You know, yeah. send us an email. Yeah, write in. I'm sure there's got to be in, some, some hoodoo guru super fans out there. Yeah. All right. All you hoodoo gurus. It's your moment to shine. Yeah. You know, I did enjoy that song. That was certainly... Um, upbeat it's certainly so 90s it's fun it's bordering on joyous but it's uh it's so friends like i just want to like jump in a fountain and yeah Uh (laughs) you know you're just waiting for the clappy part and they even had it they even had hand claps in the song it wasn't the same rhythm but as catchy um (laughs) (laughs) i was just listening for that melodica i was like oh i'm surprised by that let me ask you this Mm. this maybe is not appropriate um (laughs) do any of your patients ever want to go with like 
sexual stuff. You're going to need to add some more words to that question. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Um, the, the, the songs. The songs. Yeah. Songs yeah, with no, no, sexual right. undertones. Yes, yes, yes. You know what one I just came across recently? And that's C-A-M-E recently. Yeah. Um, was the song Alleluia. Oh, right. Sure. Because um, everybody loves that song, and and it is such a great song. So Leonard Cohen. Leonard and, Cohen. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, I was discussing it with a patient's daughter, and she was like, "Yeah, there are, there's so many verses to that song." I said, "Yeah, yes. there really are." And she said, "And I've heard some are, you know, more provocative than others." Yes. And years ago, when I was learning that song, I thought, "Do I sing that verse?" Mm-hmm. You know. Do you, do you happen the, to know? Yeah, the uh, words are. Um, there was a time when you let me know what's really going on below, but now you never show that to me, do ya? Remember when I moved in you and the holy dove was moving too, and every breath we drew was alleluia. And so, you know, it's it's about sex and and so we talked about it because she was like, yeah, I've heard, you know, I just love that song. But I've heard that there's like a provocative part. And I said, yeah, there, there's this one verse in there. And yeah. it, but I also think about it as what a beautiful poetic way to describe sure. sex, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, of course, Leonard Cohen is, I mean, he's got a way with words. Yeah, to put it absolutely. Mildly. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm thinking provocative maybe, but like poetic at the same time but yeah you know what hospice work it's working with humans so there's Mm -hmm. um you have to be willing to talk about whatever is on their mind and part of being human is sexuality and right um you need to be able to yeah go there with people and be able to talk about it you know yeah i think as younger people we kind of pretend that older people don't sexual beings yeah exactly exactly (laughs) like um uh, we're all gonna be there one day people right yep and yeah. and also it's not only older people that are of dying, so it could be like a more more traditional in like your your young mind mm-hmm. of thinking about sexuality and sure. then the loss of that and what mm-hmm. that would be like. Yeah, it's hard to transition. I know to, <laughs> to new songs, um, but we have to. So the next song we're going to talk about is by a band called The Cure. Oh yes, The Cure. Yeah, and this is a big song too. This is The Cure's biggest song in america mm. and juicy yeah it's from their eighth studio album if you can believe it which was called disintegration and this is often considered their their finest work and we're gonna hear their third single in the u.s uh which was released after lullaby and fascination street and this song is called love song mm. not only was it number two on the modern rock charts it was number two on the hot 100 this is a, a very heavily covered song at this point. Mm. Um, I would say it's probably part of the American songbook, <laughs> you know, wow. uh, even though it's not an American song. But yeah, maybe the worldwide songbook. How about that? It's been covered by Tori Amos. She has a well-known version that she did live for a K-Rock performance. It's been covered by Death Cab for Cutie. So if you want your like indie rock version, if you want more of a punk version, Good Charlotte has covered this. If you want a heavier version, it's been covered by A Perfect Circle. Adele covered this song on her album 21. She did like a bossa nova version of it. Okay. And perhaps most notably, Love Song was covered by the band 311, which they recorded for the 51st Date soundtrack. If you remember that uh, Adam Sandler and oh, I remember. <laughs> Drew Barrymore gem. Yeah. Gem. Yeah. <laughs> Some of their best work. Yeah. Why do you think this had such a P? 
appeal, mass appeal. Well, you know, this is a very personal song. Robert Smith, uh, he wrote this song as a gift to his fiance at the mm. time, who later became his wife. And um, it's very personal. It's very intimate. And I think one of the interesting things about songwriting is when you make something so personal, it can somehow become universal. You know what I mean? Does it make yeah. sense? Yeah. Yeah. So this was kind of a letter to his fiance at the time, basically saying, I'm on tour a lot. I'm gone a lot. A lot of things are going to happen in our lives, but you know what? I'm just going to let, I'm going to let Robert Smith speak for himself. How about that? I think I can hear the Adele version in my head now. Yeah. yeah. So here we go. The Cure love song. Here it is. Yeah, that's a that's a really good one. Yeah. As the generations age, this would be a great one for a hospice. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Because the songs that do have that universality, mm-hmm. although, you know, Let It Be, those. Mm-hmm. Sure. What a Wonderful World, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, these things that use metaphor right. for life so right. beautifully. This will, this yeah. has that in it. Yeah. I wonder what, what the band thought about this song. When, when Robert Smith brought it in. Mm. Some of the lyrics, they're not terribly specific, I guess. He's not calling people out by name, but mm-hmm. it does seem confessional in a sense, almost, mm-hmm. like personal. Super uh, personal. Yeah. I wonder if that made anyone uncomfortable or if they were just like, this song rules. Like, yeah. Or were all their songs highly personal and we just didn't, didn't know it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe. Well, I mean, any song has to come from somewhere, right? Yeah. It's immediately my mind starts jumping to Cure songs and I'm like, love cats. Uh, the love cats. Yeah. Mm. One thing that interested me, you know, he, Robert Smith wrote this for his fiance. And I feel like whenever you hear a story like that, you know, you go, oh, and then they got married and then they got divorced six years later. Yeah, I really and, wanted to um, know if they stayed together. They are still together. See? Yeah, they've been married all this time. No kids. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert Smith. <laughs> Is that the trick? He, uh, <laughs> that, that's the, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> That's the secret. Uh, no, Robert You'll Smith see is... each other again someday. <laughs> someday. I wonder, so when you have brought songs, or have you ever brought a song that was like highly intimate into a band practice and been like, okay, guys, like I wrote this and I want to mm. take this for a spin, or do you save those for just you? Or do you not write those? You know what? I wrote one song when I was, I think maybe like 15 or 16. It was super personal. And I remember, like, I don't know, my brother found this lyric sheet, like, a few years later. And he, like, grabbed and started reading it. And I was so embarrassed. And he would, like, he ran around the house and I chased him. And, like, there's this wrestling. It went on for, like, a half an hour. And my <laughs> face was, like, so red with embarrassment. It was like having your diary and, read. Yeah. And, um, you know... I'm not sure that I've written a personal song. Yeah, ever since, since then. you've been traumatized. Yeah. This is yeah. like everybody out there that's ever been, you know, a kid and somebody says, mm, you're not a good singer. And then they just believe that about themselves. Yeah. You get a little bit of trauma in your youth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What about yourself? 
Yeah, I pretty much only write songs either with people for their most intimate mm -hmm. things that they're grappling with or yeah. um, when I'm really struggling with something and I feel kind of at that wall of like, okay, I've cried, I've exercised, I've binge eaten and done like all of the positive and negative coping. What next? Yeah. Then if I just remember like take it to the music, that's kind of like this phrase yeah. that my colleague always says, take it to the music. Uh -huh. And what ends up happening is I'll just pick two or three chords, super simple words will come out and I'll just kind of like cycle through it. And so sometimes that results in like something that you could bring to band practice and say like, all right, here's what I've been kind of working on and, yeah. and form it up a little bit more in a way that if I felt like I wanted to, I could present it to the world. Right. And then other times it's like, nope, that was just for me uh -huh. to process through that really heavy stuff. Sure. So I guess you could do it too with joyful things, but I don't. I just use it when it's like, yeah, oh. yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, and it's got to be the right group, you know. Like mm. I, I played in plenty of bands where there was no way that I was gonna bring my stuff, so we played their music, you yeah. know. But with Deathbed Playlist, I did write a song that was super personal and intimate. And it's not one where I would necessarily share it and like play it at every gig. Mm -hmm. But if it's the right gig and the right day and I feel like sharing it, then I'll bring it up and talk about it openly. Yeah. But other times not. Yeah. So it's kind of case by case. Sure. But it's because it's a duo mm -hmm. and it's somebody that I work with and I'm like very linked to, soul sister. Mm -hmm. That's a safe place mm -hmm. to bring that. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah, that was great. We're going to move a little deeper on the charts. We're going to go to a song that hit number seven on the modern rock charts. And this is by an artist named Boris Grabenshikov. Okay. He's apparently a household name in Russia. He's, in fact, sometimes just referred to as BG. He's known as the grandfather of Russian rock. The grandfather. The grandfather of Russian rock. Oh, dude. Yeah. This so guy's big. BG. Um, mm. In 1972, he co-founded the band Aquarium, and at the time, the Russian government really frowned upon rock music. Mm. This was kind of a thing you weren't supposed to be doing. But in 1980, they got a big break. Aquarium was invited to participate in the Tbilisi Rock <laughs> Festival. Uh, this, is, this is the first Russian rock festival ever, and it, this was a state-sponsored event. But many consider this to be an attempt to channel Soviet rock music into a controllable ideological vessel. Mm. Mm, I know. Yeah, so Aquarium did not win any prizes, but they did shock the judges into leaving mid-performance by drinking wine on stage and making provocative body movements. Wait, and the judges left? Yeah, the judges left mid-performance. Oh, well, that's mid why they didn't win any awards. No, that's probably it. Yeah. <laughs> they might have otherwise. Yeah. But the result of this was that the KGB issued a report, uh, which resulted in Boris losing his day job and being kicked out of the Young Communist League. Dude. I know. Harsh. And um, what does he do as a result? He says, okay, let's just focus on music even more. So Aquarium eventually put out 11 albums between 1980 and 1991. Most of their output never made it out of Russia. But within Russia, that was enough to cement them as living legends mm. in the country. Now, in the late 1980s, I don't know, how well do you know your Russian history? Um, I know it through like little snapshots of television yeah, as good. a child. That's all you need. It, so in, in, the, in the late 1980s, there were some loosenings of uh, restrictions and, and cultural ideas were allowed to more freely flow 
And the result of that was that Boris Grebenshikov, he was allowed to record an album in the West. And what he did, he was recorded an album called Radio Silence in 1989. It was produced by Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics fame. Mm-hmm. It features Annie Lennox. It features Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders, oh. uh, among other people. And um, the single, also called Radio Silence, became a minor modern rock hit. And his only hit outside of Russia. I'm excited to hear this one. Yeah. Boris Grebenshikov, Radio Silence. Okay. I can talk about the moonlight. I can talk about the wild child. You know that we're wild one dancing alone in the middle of the world. Speaking tales about silence. And on radio silence. On some kind of a silent in the middle of the empty field full of strangers. Tales about silence. And on radio silence. On some kind of Boris, BG. I, I really like the story because I'm, I'm just really fascinated by the idea of cultural isolation mm-hmm. and then things developing, evolving off on their own paths. And, and so we've got Russia, it closes itself off to the West and rock and roll is only heard through, you know, whatever people can sneak in and it's against the law and it's not played on the radio and people find a couple songs here and there and, and they take it and then they put their own Russian spin onto it and then that evolves into something else. And then it's a whole new creature. It's rock and roll, but it's it's this totally different beast. Version, yeah. And then in 1989, this 40-something-year-old guy, the grandfather of Russian rock music, he gets to come back and then share that with the world. Yeah. And I like this song, but I'm almost surprised and disappointed that it doesn't sound more Russian to me. (laughs) It doesn't at all. No. Like you can hear a little accent, but it kind of just sounds like uh, like slurry. Yeah, his accent sounds, I would say, more British than than Russian. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert on Russian music by any means, but... You wouldn't pinpoint, oh yeah, I hear the Russian influence. Like it's not. Yeah. It could be a british band yeah or uh, an american band adding a little yeah. something to their vocals it had that element of um it kind of doesn't go anywhere per se like mm-hmm. it just holds you if yeah. you were dancing you would just be dancing and like if you found like your sweet spot beat you just like probably have the same moves that you'd cycle through like yeah. it's not like all of a sudden you're gonna have the beat drop or like mm-hmm. something drop out and then come back in like there's that interesting kind of crash boom bang uh-huh. sound change. i like the way you describe that as, as holding you because i think this is a, yeah. a very propulsive song and it once it gets going it just goes and it goes and it goes and you're like kind of galloping along with it and yeah and you're you like along for the ride yeah yeah and um it's kind of exciting to do that to get pulled along like like a wave is is carrying you to the end of the song yeah like if you're a dj and you had like a dance party going you'd need this and then you'd need to drop it into something totally yeah, different that yeah. would get people moving differently. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, did, the dance floor would clear. Did you feel a little exhausted by the end of the song? Not exhausted, but I was doing that kind of like, you know, when your brain waves go to like <laughs> beta. Uh-huh. You're just like, uh, <laughs> or you, you, yeah. it's like meditative in, the, in a way. You just kind of like stare and ride it out. Yeah. Because I'm not paying attention to the lyrics at all with mm-hmm. that one. Like not at yeah, all. Yeah, I... I mean, I got something about radio silence. Yeah, but but it's just like like that's the I'll say this about BG. At this point, he's written over five hundred songs. He's released twenty-one official albums, and as kind of a side project to being like this legendary dude, 
he has translated several Hindu and Buddhist texts into Russian, and he runs his own Russian radio station or program. I think it's time that we add some BG to my home collection. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't have any, so. Are you going to go solo BG or are you going to get some aquarium? Maybe I'll test drive a couple of different options and see. Yeah. Yeah. Now, can we tie uh, old BG into your job somehow? How- I've worked <laughs> with Russian people before. Oh, wow, nice. <laughs> yeah. And do they do they ever request Boris? Um, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> you know what? What if you brought him up? Yeah. We could do Let It Be again, or we could do some little BG. little BG, little aquarium. Maybe we could write a song yeah. about BG and yeah. their love for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, um, actually, I don't want to take my last <laughs> months to do that. So let's do something else. Yeah. I'm feeling a little nostalgic all of a sudden. You are? Yeah. Boris Grubetchikov bringing you back to the That 90s. is the summary of what I do. Bring people back to a different time. Yeah. And for people with dementia, I work with them a lot. Oh. And music is like this total pathway in. Of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. People... They really make strong connections in their brains between songs and moments in time. Yep. And yeah. uh, music's processed globally in the brain. So, mm-hmm. Do you have any songs that every time you hear it, it's just like, I think of this one moment. Like place. Place or time or person. So I was notorious for being able to sing the raps of pretty much all Coolio songs. Oh. And so when we would be at, um, you know, any sort of fifth grade through eighth grade really it carried into high school too if i'm honest if any time a song by coolio was played i would break down the rap part yeah and they were careful to beep the words that i needed to beep but yeah so i I go right back to that time of dancing in my parents living room with my friends at a birthday party and being like the star of the show and getting all of my ego needs met nice (laughs) nice yeah jillian thank you so much for joining and uh, sharing sharing all of your thoughts and interesting information about your job yeah you know if there's any listeners who have questions or comments they can get a hold of us at this is modern rock at gmail.com and um that's about it thanks for listening all you people out in podcast land and uh share with your friends yeah catch you next episode thanks will yep thank you bye